I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and true crime filmmaker. And my co-host, as always, to discuss crime on the continent is Gerard Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases and he is the profiler please visit our youtube page and subscribe simply search profiler africa we're available on apple and google podcasts soundcloud and spotify simply search profiler please share your favorite link you can engage with us on our social media pages our twitter and instagram handle is at profiler africa please also join in the group on facebook any questions or suggestions, um, we're happy to take them. You can also email us on profileraffricainfo at gmail.com. Crime scene evidence picks images of the killers we cover and their victims. We put up some interesting content on our social pages when we have it. So um, always keep an eye out there while you're listening to the episodes. Today we're just going to jump straight into a case, Gerard. Um, Last week, we thrilled everyone with a lovely conversation with Nicole Engelbrecht about her uh, podcast and her book. Um, this week, we're jumping right back into a case. Now, between 2008 and 2009, the bodies of 15 deceased adult black females, one surviving adult black female, and one deceased child were found in the western area, Fentersbos and Lanasia areas. In uh, March 2009, Gerard kind of actively became involved in this case. It's a case that he was aware of for some time beforehand, um, but it was around March 2009 that Gerard got involved. Um, first of all, Gerard, break, us, break, break down the area, western area, that part of the world in Asia. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the geography, the community, the culture there. Yeah, so this kind of straddles you know, a few areas. It's just kind of Next part of it is next to Soweto, so obviously the N12 highway, which goes to the town of Potchestroom, you know, well, two hours down the road. Um, and it's kind of that road straddles or kind of divides in a way you could say Lanasia, which was historically in terms of South African history, what we regard as an Indian township, meaning kind of anybody from the subcontinent was grouped in that category. Um, so that's Lanasia. And then sort of Fentispos West End, it's anything from sort of open ground felt to, you know, informal settlements to formal, more formalized settlements. Um, so, yeah, so it's almost like a mixture between ruralish kind of setting to kind of marsh felt houses, etc. Um, so kind of a lower, so, well, definitely the Fentispos and West End side of where these crimes occurred were, were sort of the more lower economic side of that area. And Lanasia, it wasn't in the town, it was sort of on the the sort of marshy area, felt area bordering it. So none of these were really inside. As typical of South African serial murder crime scenes, they're out in the felt, you know, in the, in the bushes, in these areas that was, as I said, felt with kind of these wattle bushes, kind of um, forest kind of things, um, and where these ladies were starting to be found. And I mean, for me, this case is almost like one of the most under-recognized, underdeveloped, under-attended to cases, yet it's really deserving of a lot more attention because 
the suspect who get, gets arrested was a real bastard. Um, and there are quite a few, you know, if you're looking to his history and how the, everything unfolded. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it had a high number of, of, of bodies, um, you know, uh, I think 16, it's the same as the quarry, which we've spoken about before. So it's, if you look at the average as eight bodies in a South African murder series, of course, we've had more like Moses Satoli. Um, and we've had, of course, less like the prostitute killer from PE that we spoke about, the niceness, serial murders, etc. So 16 is a fair size body count by South African standards. So, you know, it's, 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 it's something that if you read the judgment, which I think is available if you go online, it's a wonderful judgment by Judge Cormo, who, who was the judge in this particular case, who was a fantastic judge. And he gives such a detail. You read it, you have the whole story of what happened and how it unfolded and who was involved, etc. So it's nice on so many levels. Also later on, because we used that similar fact evidence again, you know, where we were commenting on the modus operandi and the other linkage factors. And the judge was very, very praising about that evidence in court and how that helped him come to his findings. So for lots of reasons, it's almost for legal reasons, you know, the use of similar fact evidence, you know, we did that in the quarry case for those of you that listened to it. This was probably the next really big one where we used it again. Uh, so we had two back-to-back -back really great judgments about the use of linkage analysis in South African courts, which in its own is quite a unique thing throughout the world. So a lot of reasons why this case actually deserves a lot more attention than it ever got. And for some reason, we just found certain cases just, you know, there's hardly any media in the room. There's just not much attention given to it. The critical question here is, did it have a catchy name? Did this guy well, have a catchy serial killer name that was kind of pervasive in the in the press? No. So, you know, I, I think we've said this before, and I've definitely said in my books, you know, we're not very adventurous when we think up names for serial murders. You know, if it's the first one in that particular town or area, it'll like this one, it'll be called the Western Area Serial Murders. Yeah. If it's the second one, and we might say it's the Western Area Strangler, or if we did something particularly unique to differentiate it from the first one. So, um, yeah, I mean, he didn't have a catchy name in terms of the series, and... Yeah, the media just there was media in the in a, to the courtroom. I remember it, when we went to trial. But you know, during the investigation, it's kind of these ones that's, that kind of almost it it breaks slowly. You know, sort of like oh, all of a sudden six bodies found, like we had down in Johannesburg recently that we spoke about on one of our episodes. You know, six bodies found. It's all in the media. It's massive attention. When the bodies kind of it's one, and then a little bit later there's another one. And only after maybe the third one does anybody maybe realize it's a series. It's not in the media space during the investigation. So maybe a trial, somebody might pick up, ooh, you know, there's a you know, serial murder at a trial. Or maybe once you've arrested, we make a press release that a serial murder has been arrested. But some cases just don't get that attention. And this is one of them. You know, it's never too late to give a case a catchy name. I mean, we could we, do that. We could do that right now. I mean, you threw out the Western area strangler. Yeah, because he did strangle. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's called the Western area strangler. Okay, so the Western area strangler case. That's what we officially dub it. Um, is this one of those cases where it didn't have a lot of media attention because of the locale where these crimes took place? Um, is it one of those kind of examples of a poorer community being kind of less on the radar of um, the media and even law enforcement. I mean, I mean, I guess that's possible, you know, although Lanasia itself, you know, is, you know, it's a very well-established neighborhood. A lot of high-profile people mm -hmm. have come from it, although it wasn't in the town and it wasn't people from the town. I do think if it would have been people from Lanasia that were being murdered, you might have had, you know, more of an uproar at the time. Yeah. Um, and again, like a lot of these cases, we have unidentified victims, which again, I suppose, also makes it difficult to personalize it in a way. Um, yeah. 
Well, let's let's unpack it then. So let's break down kind of what you know what the timeline of this particular case was. Yeah. Where 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 did the when did the first um, crimes occur, and when did it start to come together on you know on as far as the police were concerned that it was possible more than likely the same offender. Mm. So, I mean, I recall, and again, we're jumping back a good number of years now, this is, what, 15 years ago, when this, th- when this case started. And remember, you don't automatically realize it's a series very often yes. quite late until you've got a, a number of bodies for various reasons. There might not be DNA, you know, different detectives, or if it just straddles a different police station area, that can, can delay that people pick up you have a series. So, you know, he started, if we look at his overall history in January 2007, um, I got involved in 2009, probably early in the year, if I recall correctly. Um, I'm trying to think who actually notified us or how we found out about a possible series. But it had been picked up by the sort of serial murder investigation team in Gauteng, which at the time was was headed up by Brigadier Bailefeld. And he had a team of people. And I would say the lead investigator from his team on this case um, was, uh, at the time, uh, Inspector or Warrant Officer Ferdi Ungerer. Um, who had been trained and worked with Pete for quite a while after the, was it the 2002-2003 mine dump, Sipadube, the mine dump serial murderer, um, when he, when Ungura was working at the Child Protection Unit in Johannesburg. So I got involved, and it would have been probably early 2009 when we'd been told about this. And, you know, we did the typical things. We'd go out and start GPSing all the crime scenes, you know, getting copies of the dockets and the pictures, starting to build up some kind of a, a visual profile of what's going on. We then helped put up the operations room, so they'd set up a little ops room, um, I think, in that general area. Because, again, because they were based in Gauteng at the provincial office, which would have been sort of, I think, Pitt at the time was probably maybe even sitting at the Alexandria, uh, Alexandra police station, where, where or near there where the serious and violent crime unit or those people used to be stationed. So they decided to obviously have a base of operations closer to where the crime scenes were, which is the ideal. You don't want to be traveling two hours to get there if there's a scene or if you need to follow up investigations, you know, to travel every time from that side of, of Gauteng. So they'd set up their ops room, um, probably if I recall correctly, even in Western Area Police Station. Uh, I kind of put up, you know, did the standard thing, put up all the, the documentation of the information, the pictures, what's outstanding, etc. cetera. Um, and then I started to go to the crime scenes, just coincidentally, close towards the, the, the suspect getting arrested. And I mean, that's you didn't get arrested because of me. I don't want to try and claim any glory, and you'll see exactly how we got arrested now. So the first body I attended was in sure, um, early March uh, 2009. So we'd been involved, but this was the first one that had popped up on the radar since we'd been involved. Um, and... Um, yeah, so we went to that crime scene, then it, which was a you know adult black female, unidentified. Uh, so we obviously don't know when she was last seen. And the location of that scene was um, opposite the West End Clay Bricks factory. Um, she's partially naked, and you know cause of death was strangulation, and she was strangled with her own headscarf. So she's got like a red dress on, um, no underwear, if I recall correctly, sort of a top partially pulled up. Um, this is one of those cases where it's very typical of a South African serial, isn't it? Just from what you're explaining yep. immediately is that like this is one of the challenges when doing crime content is that so this is a lot of the serial killers um, profiles are very similar. Um, similar modus operandi, unidentified victims, strangled Absolutely. with an item of their clothing. It all sounds very familiar. Yeah. So without a doubt, and um, you know that's that's part of the problem that is that we have a high rate of unidentified victims. 
So where were they last seen? Did they have a phone we can try and trace? We can, if we find exhibits in his possession, we could link it to that particular victim. You know, somebody who maybe reported them missing, we might be able to figure out, you know, did they have a phone number of who they were supposed to go see? So all those little things you don't have with your unidentified victim, it doesn't mean you can't get a conviction. That's important to understand. Mm. You know, we don't have to prove identity to prove a conviction. We just have to prove that person A is, you know, beyond reasonable doubt responsible for their murder. Um, so, but if you look kind of back to the start of the series, um, you know, we've got bodies, as I said, from early sort of 2007. You know, if we just quickly scan through the typical thing is, you know, we, um, you know, strangled victim, ligatures start to become quite a, a, f- a common feature. So we have like a victim strangled with their scarf. So the suspect's using items that are kind of readily available. He's not taking rope with them, etc. You know, if I just look at the next lady strangled, but she also had blunt force trauma and incised wound to the neck. Um, she was wrapped up in a blanket, which was very, very different. Uh, you know, so clearly the body was left there, and this wasn't the area um, where she was murdered. And again, sort of near the clay bricks factory, both of these two victims I was speaking about now. You know, then we have kind of a little bit of a different one in 2008. You know, the victim is met by the suspect at a shopping mall and says to her that he's a ZCC prophet or priest. And, you know, she, he says to her, you're having relationship problems and you've got a womb ailment, which coincidentally she actually was. And he said, look, I can, I can help you overcome her problems. Now, whether he just took a lucky guess, I mean, who isn't having relationship problems at some point? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the womb problems, I, did he know something about her? I, we're not quite sure if he had that background. So the following day, he arrives at her workplace where she lived and worked as a domestic helper. He then makes her this sort of special tea, which he says she has to drink. Then he says, we need to go to buy the near, nearby bushes to exercise or ex, what? exercise, not yeah. exercise, but yeah. exorcise the evil spirits. Otherwise, they'll stay inside of her room if they release them and, and they're in the room, which they then go. Um, then, you know, while they're out in the bushes, says, take off your pants and underwear, lie down. And then he says he has to rub medicinal tea leaves onto her exposed sort of genitals. And then says, you know, to exercise the tokolosh, which is a sort of evil demon, she, he has to have sex with her. Now, for a lot of people listening to this, you think, well, why on earth would someone fall for all that? You know, but you also have to understand, okay, you know, people have traditional beliefs. Um, so I'm not saying that everybody would have gone, even if you had traditional beliefs, you would have gone to this extent. But, you know, he's obviously hooking on a victim who has certain concepts, way of viewing the world. I guess when he told her about her problems, she really felt this guy is some kind of a prophet, etc. So um, obviously targeting a vulnerable victim in some sense. And then fortunately, he didn't um, actually kill her and he leaves her there in the bushes. His defense in court was that, you know, they'd been lovers, which was a very common sort of um, mm. defense. And then we kind of jump forward a little bit to sort of early Jan 2009. Or again, unidentified victim strangled with pink material, which looks like clothing. Um, closer to a nearby dam. This was one of the Lanasia dockets, so it was registered under that police station. You know, the previous two dockets um, was also the the lady who was raped was a Lanasia docket. Um, Then, you know, the first two I discussed now, the lady wrapped up in the blanket and the one before that were Western area dockets. So you also have dockets, as I said, being registered in different areas, which means different investigators are are, are dealing with these. And, And a fair number of these, if I recall correctly, there was no DNA. So again, you're not having a DNA link between between these various cases, which is a common frustration. So, as I said, January, we got the lady strangled with the pink material. 
Uh, again in January, another body is found. She's identified, and she'd been last seen about 19th of January, and her body is found a week later on the 26th, again near Lanasia around that dam. So again, that's grouping of, of cases. And when we'll show you the aerial map, which I think we'll put up on our pictures, you'll see quite clearly this grouping of the Fentus Post cases were very close to each other, then a bit of a gap in between, and you've got the Lanasia Western area, um, and they're all literally geographically grouped near each other. And you'll also see where the suspects stayed. Surprise, surprise, when you see the picture very much amongst that particular area. Okay, so we'll definitely put up that map. Can we also put up your um, your linkage, your chart that shows the linkage yeah. analysis? It's obviously I think, a summary, so it's not the yeah, totality of no, the linkage. No, for sure, but, but um, I think it's an interesting document to see how you kind of lay everything out. For sure. Um, it's interesting to get a, a, a such a detailed account from a surviving victim. Mm. Um, you know, he's obviously not the kind of character who, you know, he's not selling the same story. He's not like the guy, the Mulder's Drift Rapist, who had a, a fairly consistent story, yeah. pretending to be the white guy, uh, meet my meet my, meet my my worker here at this location, yeah. and it turns out to be the actual guy, and then he t- takes you into yeah. the bush and does... And, and enacts his so, fantasies. Um, it's interesting how, you know, how adaptable this guy seemed because he's obviously kind of Darren Browning it a little bit. So he f- seems like he's kind of Darren Browning it. He's reading cues. He's, it's that, can you just reiterate kind of how these types of personalities, if you kind of disconnected a bit emotionally from things, then you rely on reading and, and kind of on reading emotion and mm. understanding people's... Does that make you better at potentially at being able to be successful at manipulating people in this kind of situation? Yeah. Look, I mean, you either just have a very easy basic con story like offering a job and you just target 10, 15 women and eventually one's going to agree with you and come with you. Or I guess you could say here he was maybe reading the particular situation. Mm. So you'll see at the end of this he had... You know, that lady that he approached pretending to be a traditional healer. Other ones, he was given a lift in his car. Other ones, it was this. So he is definitely more adaptable, which would also make it, you know, until you have DNA linkages, more difficult to say, oh, these ca- cases are similar. Mm. You know, um, some of them might be similar, but, you know, other ones might be quite different. So definitely more challenging to investigators to pick up that we're dealing with the same guy. Um, although you'll see here there was some very good work done by... Um, some of the people, well, the person that actually really was responsible for this guy getting caught in the end. So using mm. their brains, wonderful, you know, just detective initiative yeah. uh, that was taking place. Absolutely. Looking at the map, which people have, will have had a chance to look at now, um, the fact that everything is grouped so tightly together, so many of the cases are grouped so tightly together. I mean, was there a, was there a, a sense of fear and anxiety in the community at the time? If it's if these cases aren't being kind of well publicized or you know, the messaging from the police is not out there that there's a serial and you need to mm. look out for yourselves. Is there a relative amount of ignorance in the yeah. community at the moment? At Absolutely, the, because remember, you've got despite three, this group three different police stations. <clears throat> we're telling the story, you know, quickly one case after the other. This is, remember, we're already talking about, we've jumped from sort of, what's it, 2007 to 2009. So remember, these are happening, you know, once or twice, three times a year, different police stations, um, some of the victims you've spoken about have been unidentified. So I can guarantee you at that point, probably nobody in the community was aware that we have this, there's this issue, woman passing away. Um, you know, it could be the work of one individual. There, there was no anxiety as far as I recall. Um, in fact, the majority of people probably even until the arrest didn't know there was a serial potentially. Um, I don't recall that it was, again, I could be speaking under correction. Um, I don't even recall that there was any media hype about, even towards the end, oh my goodness, we've got a serial. Mm. 
Okay. All right. Let's carry on. Where to from here? Yeah. So um, again, just jumping through, you know, we so so January two thousand nine. You know, we start to see a lot of bodies, and if I recall correctly, that's probably when and why um, it was sort of now labeled as a possible serial. Uh, we got involved. So literally, I think we've got now the first body. She had the pink ligature around the neck. The second one in Jan. She also had a ligature around the neck. Then there's another one in Jan that we haven't discussed yet. She had a mixture of stuff. She had, you know, blunt force trauma, stab wounds, and also a ligature around her neck, which was her own trousers. So, and here for the first time, we actually seem to have some DNA evidence. So, um, you've seen this one and the lady wrapped up in blanket. There was a lot of other violence, and that can very often just be because of how that particular scene unfolded. You know, a victim fights back. Well, now you've got to start using physical domination force, hitting, punching, etc., mm. to main, to overwhelm the individual. So that's why you, you will sometimes see, geez, these were all strangled, but then suddenly this one had strangled and was hit in the rock in the head with a huge rock, and you know multiple causes of death potentially taking place. Um, this lady now that had these various injuries in the trousers, she fortunately was identified. Basically found six days after she went missing and was last seen at a, at a petrol station, but again found near the uh, West End Clay Bricks factory. Um, very, these bodies are in quite a state of decomposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's because the time of the year, especially. I mean, some of these are, a bunch of these are around January 2009, yeah. where he was very active. In that time of the year, I gather in the heat yeah, and the, in the heat these bodies what's going to happen to those bodies just give us a little bit of a break yeah for sure there. i mean it's midsummer in south africa um so they're out in the open so with you know within minutes if it's in the daytime you're going to have flies within you know 10 15 minutes flies attracted to the scene after a while they will lay their eggs in in any wound uh or like the nose the eyelids the ears where it's a bit of sh more of a shaded but perhaps moist and you know once those those fly eggs grow into maggots, they start to obviously eat, and just eat away at the body. Um, you'll have whatever, anything from dogs to rats to any other kind of small predators, rodents that are in the area that will also start and be attracted to the body. Um, as if there's rains, that's gonna you know, also add to the decomposition. So you know, within it, you know, if bodies are found a week later, it doesn't sound like a long time, but from a decomposition point of view in summer, you know, a lot of your potential evidence like DNA is not gonna be available. So that is never great. Um, and, and then, of course, then the autopsy thereafter determining, because, you know, something like strangulation, yes, we're lucky here. There's, there's ligatures left around the person's neck. So even if you find a skeleton, but there's a ligature around the neck, the doctor would say, you know, most likely or consistent with or, you know, strangulation cannot be ruled out. Mm. Uh, for us, from a linkage point of view, it doesn't matter because what we're seeing is the same stuff at the crime scene. So even if he killed her by sitting on her chest, but there's still a ligature around her neck. That's a linkage factor. We're not mm. talking about cause of death. We're just talking about what do we see at the scene? Well, something around that person's neck that wasn't, you know, a normal scarf that a person might just be naturally wearing. Mm. Um, it's tied tight with a knot around the neck. Um, but and now we're up to, I think, the fifth body. Uh, and they seem to be found being found a lot faster, which is why, again, we've now got another DNA find on this particular body, which was found on the 27th of January. She was identified and has blue fabric uh, around, around her neck. I can't gather from the crime scene photographs whether there's a kind of a, a, a big effort to conceal the bodies. No. Um, some of them are a little bit more kind of covered by brush and bush and what have you, but some seem to be just kind of laid out in quite open, obvious areas. Yeah. What, what's your sense? Yeah, there? I mean, that's very common. Um, you know, for those of you that listen to the quarry story or read about it in my book, 
you know, that's that's it. You know, bodies pretty much just left. You know, they might be stuck behind a rock, as we saw with the quarry, or just the mere fact that it's in a more sort of deserted area. For them, if they feel that nobody's really going to come past you easily, <clears throat> that's as good as covering it. Yeah. Because if you think, well, you know, this is not on a directly on a pathway, chances are, pop, you know, somebody might not find it for a long time, in which case it might be then already too decomposed to be of any use from an identification point of view. So not surprised, you know, to dig a hole is really a lot of work and effort. Then you have to have something like a shovel. Uh, and it's not quick to dig a hole to bury a body. You know, you have to have it reasonably deep to cover it then that it's, you know, uh, and even sort of, you know, chopping down bushes, you're hanging around longer than is necessary with a dead body. So a lot of guys think I'd rather take the body to a fairly deserted place. I don't see anybody around here. Leave it here. Will it be found? Maybe, maybe not. How long, how soon? Maybe, I don't know. And, and rather get away because if you're sitting there digging a hole and you've got a dead body next to you and somebody walks past, uh, what you're doing? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Look what I just dug up, you know. So it's, 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 you have to balance up the risk of time you're spending doing all these post-incident behaviors uh, versus getting caught hanging around a dead body. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, and like I said, lure them out into a deserted area, commit your crime and leave them there. It's just the standard thing we see in South Africa. Yeah. All right. So we've got a whole spate of cases happening. I mean, just body after body. And I imagine it's very, ch it's, you know, the challenge is to, to try and order them who disappeared when yeah. because the bodies are being discovered at different times. Um, once you're involved, what are the kind of key, what are the key next yeah. steps that really push the case forward? And, and when do we actually get start to identify a potential mm. suspect in this case? Well, look, already we've got a very small geographical area, although it's different police stations, you know, when you GPS them. So again, if you go to one crime scene and you drive to the next, it might seem a long way to get there. But when you look at them on the GPS map, like you'll see on the picture we're going to post, it's very close. Mm. Uh, so that's important because that already solidifies the link one link important linkage aspect which I testified at court is the geographical grouping. Um, then of course, how many of these cases I've just mentioned now, we're talking about a ligature around the neck and it's typically an item of clothing by the victim. They're all females. So all those types of things are, you know, again saying we do, you know, without DNA, even at this point in time uh, that's confirming it, which we might we'll get in a moment from the two cases that have been obviously sent in for processing, you know, we don't have a doubt that this is a serial that, that is operating in this particular area. So again, it's it's identifying, if possible, the victims. As you'll see, this last one in January, I think we're on now victim six or something, is literally completely skeletonized. Yeah. So identification is going to be really difficult. You've got to try and match it with missing persons reports. But of course, like you said a moment ago, ordering the bodies. You know, when we do our operations room, we don't put the bodies in the order that we found them because that's absolutely totally meaningless and, and just mm -hmm. to, due to chance. You try and order them in terms of when the incident likely occurred. So you're going to use things, obviously a forensic pathologist, maybe giving you an estimation on how long the body's been dead for. Um, but because the pathologists typically don't come to the crime scene, uh, they only see the body in the mortuary after it is booked in, put in the fridge, and the next day they'll see it when they do the autopsy. You know, they can't comment on how long a person, a fresh body's been dead for, sure. unless they go to the crime scene. Okay. Which they typically don't because the cops don't call them to the crime scene. Yeah. So that's again, it's a whole other issue on its own. Yeah. So then you're going to look at things like uh, forensic entomology, which we did use in this particular these case, some of these cases, mm -hmm. to say, right, how long does it we think, based on the entomology, this person probably has been out exposed and dead, um, to, to expose the environment. So that's helpful. And then at least you can try to say we're looking for people who went missing between this period and this period, maybe in this general area. Because remember, you can have someone who was left Toyondo to come here for a job offer. 
you're probably going to report the missing Toyondo. Yeah. And then, of course, the time frame. So um, it can be difficult, but that's one of your steps. Looking for missing persons that might match these um, bodies that you found, any kind of other things, reconstructing faces, you know, graphically, or, you know, we do have in the police people who will take a skull and can rebuild it. And then kind of we can put out an image in the media. That takes a while, of course, saying this lady possibly looks like this, was found, deceased, um, maybe around about in the past six months. But where do you start? Because that person could have come from anywhere in South Africa. So do you blast it on SABC News, which newspapers? So it becomes challenging, uh, to say the least. Two questions. Um, Does the pathologist go to the case when it's a a woman being shot in her bathroom in Centurion? Um, not necessarily, to be honest with you. Did a pathologist go out to that crime scene, to the Oscar crime scene? Oh, oh, uh, that was Pretoria East, not Centurion. Well, Pretoria East. Um, uh, to, as far as I recall, no. No forensic pathologist was called okay. to the scene. So at this stage, is there any kind of media, what, what is the media strategy? Is there a media strategy at this stage? Well, you know, what are we communicating? If you're, if you're developing these potential leads, whether it's, uh, mm. you know, identicates of, of the potential victim, yeah. of the victim, et cetera, um, are those being released into the, yeah. into the public space? You know, I have to say to you, I can't remember at this point, because we're now by this point very sure that there's a serial happening. Yeah. I can't specifically recall, because um, I don't have my old case file, unfortunately, where I had detailed notes of all, at least what I was doing. Um, you would typically say it's a responsibility to, to say to people that we have someone who's targeting females. Um, but what's your typical strategy? You know, be careful, don't go anywhere with a stranger. Like, hello, that's your daily strategy in life, to be honest with you, yeah, should be. Exactly. So, um, but, but uh, you know, you would just normally want to say that someone is targeting a woman. If we have any information like how it happened, like he offers a job or he's driving a car, you know, you'd want that to be made known to people. Because um, you do have that duty to warn mm. the public to be more careful. Of course, that could cause the suspect to change his strategy, to go quiet, to relocate to a different area where he hasn't been active. So that in a way, it's a double-edged sword. You have to warn people because you obviously don't want people to become the next victim. But at the same time, it actually can even make it more difficult to catch the guy because he can start up somewhere else. For sure. That's why, you know... So it's, it's kind of a... You, why it's you interesting. Do, I think do you I release say, the information at this stage or do you wait until you've got a solid yeah. suspect so that you've got... Because you're right. I mean, what story do you tell to the public mm. other than, you know, just how you, what your daily behavior should, should be, be in this part of the world, you know? Well, you could say, look, you know, we've, the, you know, we've noticed people, are, ladies are being targeted... You don't necessarily have to say the word serial. Would you know? Would mm. would would the media pick up and ask if it's a serial? Uh, would you say well, we're we're still confirming it, but we have the necessary? My my typical response would be in these situations that the, if you get a question from the media, is to say, um, if you feel that you don't yet want to say it's a serial, we, I mean it's not. I don't I don't believe in just automatically denying ever it's a serial. That's just a childish, stupid argument. Yeah. But you know, if you if for an st- investigative reason, like let's say we are very close to catching this guy. We actually don't want 
necessarily the media attention because it might make him him. get rid of the cell phone we're tracing Mm. or something like that. You know, we typically, the safest response is to say, we're looking into the possibility. We do have a task team looking into all these cases. We have the necessary experts with serial murder experience looking at the cases. So if it does turn out to be confirmed as serial, we already have those resources um, allocated to the investigation. So it's kind of like, we're treating it one, but we're not yet saying it is one. We're waiting for kind of, you know, forensic confirmation type of stuff. Um, you know, at least to make the public feel like you're doing something. Because I say, often say to the cops, you know, we shoot ourselves in the foot. If you say, no, 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 it isn't. And then, you know, you have four bodies in three days. It's a bit, you know, okay, it is. Well, we've been telling you, you know, cops that it is. And now you, go, you guys are slow to the party. So you look like morons. Mm. So rather say, you know, we have the necessary people who are busy looking at the dockets. We are following up forensics. So, you know, you can, you can kind of say we're doing all the things necessary that if it turns out to be one, we're not behind by 20 steps mm. without actually saying, yes, we say it is a serial. But the cops just seem to love to shoot themselves in their foot when it comes to not looking like plonkers who, oh, now, as I said, when the whole world's been saying it is, you suddenly 20, late, you know, 20 days yeah. late to say, okay, it is. Mm. And you might have been treated as one, but you've kind of been creating the impression that no, it's not, and we're not looking at it. Because when the, the public hears you saying, we can't confirm, or no, it's not, they also hear you saying, well, then you're not doing anything mm. about it. If you're yeah. saying it's not, you're not properly allocating the resources. Um, and then you look at Plonka when, you know, you admit it later, even if you were giving those resources behind the scenes. So it's, it's a very interesting way of dealing with these things that you have to, there's no blanket response. You have to look at each particular case. Mm. Um, um, but the cops just don't often behave strategically in the media. Do you have conversations about these kind of dilemmas in the pro- as you're going through the process? Do you like, you know, in the, in the Monday yep. morning staff meeting, do you guys talk so we about would, these So we would typically try and get the local media officer. Um, at one point, we used to give training to media officers about how to respond in possible serial cases. Wow. Um, then that kind of fell apart, by, fell by the wayside. Um, and then what we would try to do is say, right, who would be the media, res- would it be a provincial office dealing with media inquiries for this? Would it be Lanasia's police station? We would typically say, let's rather get the provincial office. They typically have a bit more experience um, dealing with the media, uh, dealing with high-profile cases because it's there from the provincial office. Then we would know that Sally Mokobella is the contact person for SAPS Media. Sally, this is what's going on. This is what we don't want mentioned because, you know, in a single murder case, putting a lot of information out there might get people to come forward and say, I saw this. I maybe, you know, I have a piece of information for you. I didn't realize it might be relevant. Serials, I always say it's like an organized crime case. You don't want to be blasting out into the media everything you know because the suspect is an on, it's an ongoing crime, really, because you know the suspect's going to strike again. Uh, like you don't tell organized crime, you know, we've got an organized crime task team looking into this particular case. Oh, okay, the cops are on to us. Maybe we need to scrub our, you know, our evidence or, our, you know, information we could have left behind. So you would want to strategize with that media person. They don't release anything without first running it by the head of the task team. So there's a collaborative approach because we might say, look, you know, that's very bad to mention, typically in serials, and this is why. And there might be something that in a normal case, it's not bad to release. So you have to have that sort of education with your media people um, in, in, in responding to things. Um, one thing I can assume is that there's no savvy journalist in this case who's really gone and put it all together because um, I think you can say that with 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 little doubt that this kind of body count in this kind of contained area, if it 
did come into the media landscape as as a serial case mm-hmm. um, that was active and happening at the time, then it would get a lot of interest yeah. because you know, I mean, it ticks a lot of the boxes that make just a podcast about serial crime interesting. Absolutely. You know, people are have that morbid fascination and curiosity yeah. about it. So maybe it's a lesson to journalists, you know, as well to like uh, if you're on that crime beat, you know, you got to really keep your ear to the ground and and and. Mm-hmm. You know, you you may well come across those cases in your career where you're the journalist that puts it together. The fact that the police are really working on what they consider to be a serial case, even mm-hmm. if they're being a little bit um, withheld Stand with the amount of information yeah. that they're providing to the public. Well, we've had serials where we find about it in the media. Like there was a series of murders of, I think this was still when I was in the police, of elderly gay men in, in Johannesburg. Okay. And the media was saying, "Do we've got to like the fifth incident of a gay guy being murdered in his house? What's happening?" And you know, Sap's kind of like, "Oh, you know, we didn't really realize it." Or even this recent serial arsonist. You know, it was more the media that were picking up. There's a serial arsonist here in Johannesburg, yeah, um, and pushing and driving that agenda, which it's good because we need whatever me- mechanisms to bring yeah. these things to the attention of the cops you know we'd love yeah. to say they're all going to be done by dna and good police work but you know sometimes but again you know and happening under the noses of the journalists in the suburbs of the city <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like okay great that you know sure it happens either yeah. way but um, just a little interesting um um side conversation about the media mm-hmm. component it's certainly very interesting but yeah, like you say, with anything, it's it's adaptable on a case by case basis. You just have to do what's best for the investigation, I guess. When you are uh, yep. the investigator, so doubt. so what happened next? Like okay. again, when do we get to a, a suspect in this case? Well, not yet, sadly. Um, so the last victim in, in Jan two thousand and nine was twenty third of Jan. Her body was found, and sad also ligature strangulation, black fabric, mm-hmm. but sadly the suspect also murdered an infant child. So this is perhaps one of the saddest cases of this whole series. And why I say that uh, the suspect who was arrested was a real a real bastard. Yeah. So we jump forward to Jan, oh, sorry, February 2009, unidentified lady found again near the West End clay bricks, uh, cause of death, multiple head injuries, stab wounds, uh, and she died in hospital. So there was a little bit of information there. And this is now the third case where we at least have ultimately some DNA. We jump forward to March. Um, a lady was identified. She'd been last seen in Feb. She's found in March, about 10 days later, 20 Feb, she's last seen. First of March, she's found. But now this is way out near, well, not way out, but out near Fentus Post Golf Course. Partially naked, handbag strap around her neck as a ligature. All right. Partially naked, finding DNA. I'm assuming that this is semen that we're yeah. finding, where so we're getting, three, which yeah. is the source of DNA, which is indicating yeah. se- a, a big sexual component. Here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the partial nakedness, yes, the semen, it's, I think it was all DNA from semen, the three incidences I think that I've mentioned so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that was that lady then. So what we have here is, a, what, how would you define, how would you start to describe this person at this stage? A sexually motivated yeah, sexually motivated serial murderer. Serial murderer. Almost stock standard, to be honest with you. It's the same as the Quarry case. Yeah. You know, it's the same as the majority of our serial. So in that sense, what he's doing is not unique um, per se. He was a unique guy. He did have a few variations, like in his modus operandi, and we'll get to a little bit about him, which is a bit more unique. Mm. Um, you know, killing a child along with a mom, which is, of course, an extra level of 
um, bastardness, if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah. Next, I mean, just to show you, like you mentioned decomposition. So the next lady that was found, 23rd of March, she went missing in December of the previous year. So yes. she's pretty much skeletonized. She had a, a, a wire ligature. So again, when you put these things in order, she's one of the earlier bodies, you know, so we have a wire. Then all the other ones we've mentioned so far mostly have had their items of clothing. Uh, and sometimes that even shows you the, the level of progression that our suspect goes through. Um, then, as I said, we're already involved. And the next one, which was found on the 9th of March, unidentified, unfortunately, was the first scene, that, um, an autopsy that I attended. And she was strangled by, uh, with her scarf. And at that one, again, we're, we're a very decomposed body. A few, and I know, Paul, you're looking at the pictures we have here, which we can't display. No. Um, you know, very decomposed body. We have forensic entomology, again, being used to help identify um, the person, uh, the time period. And then now we start to get to the point, of course, we're getting close to arresting our suspect. Uh, we didn't know that per se. But we have a lady um, who was last seen on the 13th of March. She's found the next day entering a vehicle. Um, and I'll give you a little bit, back more, bit more about the story. She's found near Fentos Post, near the sewage farm. And thankfully, she survives after having been attacked with a brick and manually strangled, which means strangled with the hands and raped. So the backstory to this one, um, she says that she was offered a lift by the guy, the, uh, the suspect in a Volkswagen Golf, but inside was already a neighbor of hers. So obviously she's feeling, you know, okay, here's my neighbor, I know her, it's pretty safe. The neighbor gets dropped off, and then he continues on his way with her in the car, the victim, to Western area. Again, he says, I'm a ZCC prophet, that you are destined for great things, but you need to be cleansed. I have a special bath. So it's sounding very much like that other lady that he approached um, and said, you know, I see you've got relationship problems and wound problems. I'm a ZCC prophet. You need to get rid of the demons. So here we have very much kind of a similar sort of story yeah. that he's using, and she declines this offer, so she clearly thought that's a lot of nonsense. The Western area prophet strangler? <laughs> Maybe. The well, worst. if he was strangling prophets, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you're right. Sorry. Prophetic strangling. Mm. So he then takes what he says an incorrect, incorrect turn, not in the direction they're supposed to be going, accelerates and stops near the sewage farm. He then basically, you know, attacks her sexually. They fight back. He then grabs a brick, hits her on the head, strangles her. He rapes her twice, vaginally and anally. Uh, and ultimately, her phone was found in his possession at the time of his arrest uh, a couple of days after this. Let me actually quickly check you. Uh, about two weeks after this, actually. Um, Bad um, cell phone practices tend to also be common in these type of serial yeah. cases in this period, especially. Like I, mean, I say, they're not watching... They're not listening to this podcast and they're not watching crime investigations. So I think that yeah. people don't realize... And I don't want to give too much away, you know, no. how you can trace people um, using technology. Yeah. So they get hold of the neighbor, <clears throat> and she says that he had also told her he was a prophet and she needed to be cleansed, and she also turned down that offer. And he had also tried with her before this victim we're speaking about now got into the car. The neighbor says, you know, he also turned down the road to the Fenters Post, Fenters Post golf course, but then he noticed a traffic cop in a car parked under a tree, probably having a nap and kind of deviated back. Um, <clears throat> so she was already a little bit mm, nervous about this guy. Now, why she didn't say to her friend, let's get out, don't get into the car, you know, I don't know. Um, but when she, the neighbor, gets out of the vehicle, obviously leaving her friend in the car, she notes down the registration number. And I think she got it wrong by one letter, but we'll explain that now. Um, and he just denied the suspect when he was eventually caught that this event ever took place. 
So now, this is now, as I said, we moved forward with some really great um, investigation work. So there was Captain Komotsu Mantata. She was at, if I recall correctly, Western Area. She was from the Sexual Offences Unit, uh, or she was investigating sexual offences. Um, she mentioned to a colleague that, hey, you know, I've got this offender. He wore ZCC badge. He drives a cream-colored Volkswagen. He was wearing Sangoma beads. And the colleague who she's speaking to, um, Constable Moshlokwane, said, but hang on a minute. That fits a suspect that I know that I have been investigating a, a, a case against and that, you know, the car and the description you're giving is very, very similar. Um, and I know where that suspect stays. I don't know whether she'd arrested him and he was out on bail or, or the case being withdrawn, but she knew, that constable knew where the suspect that she thinks could be Komotsu's suspect actually stays. And they then go that night um, on the 20th, well, they go on the 27th of March with a team of people and they see the car outside it's basically that same re um, registration number that the neighbor had noted, except I think the, the R was actually been a K, which is, which is fine, but the rest was the same. It's a cream-colored car. They go there, arrest him, he's asleep with his girlfriend in the shack, um, and you know they recover the, the beads, uh, you know items of clothing, I think some cell phone stuff, etc. And basically, you know, so it actually, ironically, wasn't the serial investigation team, uh, Ungura and, and Pete Bailefeld, that actually caught this guy. Yeah. It was through the rape investigations that um, a guy ultimately by the name of Jack Mohale gets arrested by the good work of Captain Mantato, who just happens to be discussing a case with a colleague. Yeah. And that's how these little things How many times has that together. come up yeah, in, our, in our discussions where it's just... Yeah. A moment where it all just yeah. comes together in some piece of the investigation. And it's so unpredictable, isn't it, you know, where and, that and, happens? And if you think about it, you know, we have a lot of wonderful technology here which helps identify people, link people, etc. And that's great. We have to make use of that to its fullest extent. But you ha you, none of that means anything if you don't have a detective who's just doing good old-fashioned basic mm. detective work. And I think I mentioned it previously, I don't know, on this podcast or the one with Nicole we did, where I read this book that came out in, I think it was 1957 or 52. Yeah, you mentioned it when we were Colonel chatting Uf to Nicole. Yeah. who was, like my books, he's speaking about his cases from like the 20s, 30s, and 40s, yeah. um, from Cape Town, Durban, and Joburg, where he was working. And how he solved these most, anything from robberies of jewelry to murders to sexual assaults to, you name it, by using his bloody brain. Yeah. And I just, when I read that book, it's for me the most fascinating book. And I've said that the last time and I'm repeated now. If you don't have that detective mindset, all your technology means absolutely bugger all. Exactly. Which makes you think, I mean, do we rely too heavily on the technology these days? I think and we do. Certainly within our police system, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be enough emphasis on yeah. maintaining and sustaining detective expertise, yeah. investigative expertise within the organization. And maybe that has something yeah. to do with the fact, oh, well, we've got technology now. Yeah. We can it's check like, cell phones. I, we can I think DNA. it can make people lazy. Because like, okay, I've sent my fingerprints off. I've sent my rape kit off to forensics. Um, I'm subpoenaed cell phone and, and information, and I'm going to wait. Like, no, and, and hopefully that, that that's going to tell you who your suspect is. And, and you've got to maintain yeah. a level of creativity as an investigator. Absolutely. To constantly be looking in new directions and to be, you know, yeah. it's it's like in the, those movies that you see, like in the movie Seven, where they where where they go back to the one 
to the one guy's office with the wife and it's like is there one thing that's out of place here you know it's that looking for that one little thing mm. that might be just slightly off canter or slightly you know mm. that might point you in the in the in the right direction and again here we're seeing absolute examples of where it's just a couple of little pieces coming together a smart savvy cop gets the mm. right bit of information and is able to put it all together mm. It, just about the car, I find the car an interesting component yeah, here because absolutely. typically if, you know, this guy has got a car, it means he has the ability to extend his yeah. geog his geographical kind of kill zone um, quite significantly. Yep. You know, a lot of the times you see these types of um, kind of bundling together of mm. cases with these kinds of modus operandi, like the quarry, quarry killer. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you assume it's not, he doesn't have a vehicle yeah. and he's working in an area that he can access. It's just interesting that he, this guy has got a vehicle and yet he's still kind of too lazy yeah. to go and Absolutely. I mean, the overwhelming majority, look at that map, the overwhelming majority are still grouped very close to where you stayed. You know, in Asia, Western area. Then you've got these sort of two out there Fentersports cases, which, you know, but you, then you also wonder, okay, did he do stuff further out there Absolutely. that we don't know about? We haven't linked because the bodies were you know, found long afterwards. They're not in the same geographical area, so we don't automatically assume that that case, maybe 15, 20 kilometers away, could be him. And unless the DNA man manages to match back. So nothing ever later on matched from a forensic point of view, DNA-wise. But he could have done stuff and yeah. was just better at hiding you know, what he's been up to. All right, then. So so let's talk a bit about this guy. We've got a suspect. His name is Jack Mojale. Now, I assume that because he's on the police radar that, that the police will have known a little bit about him. You t Tell us a bit about this guy. Yeah. What is his background? So now, this is interesting. And this is, again, what he did, per se, had a few interesting aspects to it. Um, but I find Jack in a way more interesting. So he was born in April 1967. So at the time of his first murder that we know of, um, of the ones we discussed here, he was 41. Now, from our research we've done, and we've said it before, that the average age of a, a, average age of a South African serial murderer at the time of their first murder is 29. I mean, look, we've discussed, we've had, you know, 12, oh, not 12, we've had like sort of, what, 14, 15. You know, I think one girl was potentially 13. Um, so 41 is quite old for the first murder. Now, again, does, he might have done other ones we don't know about, you know, for all we know, but he's older at the time we're catching him. Let me put it that way, if anything. <clears throat> Unmarried, but living with his girlfriend, that's not too uncommon. You know, we've had a few, the, the Neisner guy, the, the Port Elizabeth guy, uh, the Quarry guy, you know, had girlfriends at the time. He had two children. He dropped out in matric, um, unemployed at the time. So the, the car was actually his girlfriend's car, and he would use it as a part, as a taxi. So you know, to, to earn money. Okay. But he had a quite an extensive criminal history. Yes. Um, sadly, pre most of it's pre-DNA, so he wasn't popping up, wouldn't have popped up on the system. So his criminal history, and this is now the conviction history, so he might have done a hundred other things we don't know about, and or uh, in, I don't think there was cases that were withdrawn, but I think this is definitely what he was convicted of. So 12th of September 19, 1988, convicted of rape, sentenced to seven years. Now remember, this is pre the Minimum Sentences Act. Uh, if he had done this after 2007, your first conviction would have been a minimum of 10 years. Mm. So 1988, convicted, sentenced to seven years um, imprisonment, which means seven years would have made it, ninth, that would have expired, or well, the complete sentence would have expired in, what's that, uh, 95. Mm. So obviously he'd come out on parole, because the 9th of February, 95, 
he gets convicted of two counts of housebreaking and one of trespassing. And he kind of gets sentenced to like five, three, four, five months. Mm. Okay. Again, housebreaking now, I mean, you get a far heavier sent- sentence probably for housebreaking than just a couple of months. Mm. But then in June the following year, so just over a year and three months after that conviction, he's again convicted of rape and gets a 10-year sentence uh, for that one. So we have someone who's already a serial rapist because he has these two separate incidences. Then um, he's clearly out back in the society because 28th of January, so what's that, less than four years later, he is convicted of 12 counts of fraud. Remember, convicted, which means he was doing this before that date of 28th January, of fraud. So he has quite an interesting wide range, housebreaking, trespassing, because that you can say it's kind of one and the same thing, housebreaking, trespassing rape, rape, and fraud. I think if I recall correctly, he was trying to sell property to people that he didn't actually own. Um, So he had that case running parallel to sort of while he's doing all of these uh, different activities. I mean, it was a total of 62 counts that ultimately were laid against him, yes? Mm. Was that what he was charged with, these 62? So that's kidnapping, 18 counts, rape, 19 counts, murder, 16 counts, attempted murder, one count, robbery robbery with aggravated circumstances, three counts, fraud, one count, theft, one count, assault, GBH, one count, sexual assault, one count, escape from lawful custody, one count. We'll discuss the last one in a second. But this is an absolute career criminal, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And somebody in a better world in a perfect world in a more organized world um living in the middle of a killing field essentially somebody you'd think would be on some kind of a list to Mm. be checked up on Mm. when all of this is happening in his area i mean that's you know in other more in other societies like who lives in this area in other previous history of rape (laughs) exactly in the in the uk or in other parts of the world you'd expect that maybe they'd be able to they'd be on some kind of an offender list and would be at least questioned as a potential suspect purely because they're known to live in that area and again it comes into our circumstances he was living in a shack so you know it's an informal environment I can't recall his two old rape cases, whether they were in that geographical area. I mean, they could have been from Toyondo, sure. for all we know. I can't yeah, recall yeah, off the top yeah. of my head. So, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of things in our circumstances which make it difficult to track and trace people, have people on lists, their whereabouts. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's just how it is, sadly. Something to aspire yeah. to, though, in the, in the, in the maybe future of something. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, in the Netherlands, if you move into, a, whether you're renting or buying, within like a week or two or something, there's a short time period you have to register who's staying there okay so the cops literally know if if you take these four city blocks you can go and get a list of everybody who stays there Mm. so if you have a rape that occurs in that little town you can draw up that list compare it to previous convictions oh we've got three people here being previously convicted for rape let's go and see where they were on the night of so and so and such and such so that's great we just we don't have that no Um, but we still have successes too at the same time you know yeah. So what happens then with the um, with the court case for Jack? Well, even before the court case, you well, mentioned it a moment before. ago, the, yes, the yes. escape from lawful custody. Let's talk, when did he escape from prison? <laughs> he did a bit of everything, this guy. So on the 14th of April, this is now what, I guess, two or three weeks after he's been arrested. He's at Brixton police cells awaiting for a court appearance in Pratia Magistrate's Court on the 16th of April. Um, he basically, in a nutshell, that he goes out. You know, what they, what the cops will do is they'll say, right, Frank, John, Paul, Andrew, you know, come forward and you have to go to court today. 
So what we typically, or not, we've fairly often found is that a suspect will have said to another guy, what are you in here for? And the guy said, no, I'm, I'm here for theft of, you know, shoplifting, you know, very minor charge. Yeah. So great. Well, when they call your name, you don't go. Either he threatens a guy or he says, I'll pay you 50 bucks. And so when they call out George, who was arrested for, for shoplifting, you go as George and maybe you pay an admission of guilt fine or you quickly plead guilty and you get a, you know, they're not going to send you to jail for that. They'll mm -hmm. give you a suspended sentence or whatever. Um, and you get out. You walk so out the he was door. trying to do this. And Sipo Dube, the, the mind dump serial murderer from a couple of years before that, did that also. Mm -hmm. And he also managed to get away. So it's really just a lack of being able to confirm identities in the time and, and I guess assuming why would anybody else go forward for a crime that isn't theirs? Well, because if you're convicted, if you're charged with a lesser crime and I think I can get out, you know, um, by just yeah. quickly pleading guilty or maybe the case is withdrawn, boom, I'm out. So basically they kind of discovered him in the toilets um, hiding and he presented himself as another suspect, Gerald Malloy. So he fortunately didn't actually get out. Um, but he was very close, halfway getting out. So they actually charged him with successful escape from lawful custody because he wasn't where he was supposed to be, which was in the actual cells. And he was then charged for that also amongst the others that when eventually went, when, um, went, to, went to court in the high court eventually. You know, and, and what's interesting is, you know, I was talking about him as an interesting guy, besides the fact that he was in his late 40s when he was doing all of this. Um, on a previous occasion before he was arrested for this, when at the Western Area Magistrates Court, um, Captain Montata had seen him, um, and I guess he, he recognized or something, he had said to her, you know, one day I'll be out of custody and you'll be the first person I will rape and murder to wow. the investigator, to, the, to Captain Montata, who was actually the guy that arrested her. So, yeah, very unpleasant person. Um, and his statement is likely quite true. Yeah, I have no doubt. Tell us a little bit about him. I mean, we've spoken about his crimes. Tell us a little bit about his demeanor from observing him, not necessarily sitting down to do an interview with him, mm. but which I believe you didn't do then. Um, w tell us a little bit, just what were your impressions of him? Yeah, look, from his court behavior and, like I said, what he had said towards Captain Montata that when I get out there, the first person I'm going to rape and murder. Um, in court, he had sort of a, a, an arrogant demeanor. Um, his defense, you know, was... I don't dispute that people were murdered and raped, but it wasn't me. And, uh, I, and I totally, you don't, I know nothing about that escape from custody charge. It's not true. So, you know, not, not surprising. He just has this blanket denial, which, you know, when you've got, you know, a couple of DNAs that are linking you, ID parades, your own pointing out that you did earlier, um, shortly after your arrest. Uh, and it's not surprising. These guys often still say, I know nothing about this. Um, you know it's a foregone conclusion this guy's going to get convicted. He just either doesn't believe that's the case, that he thinks that the courts are going to accept you know, his, his nonsense. I mean, he even said that you know, the night he was arrested, Captain Montata found a used condom from the sex that he had with his girlfriend, and that's, they took that and planted his DNA uh, on all these crime scenes. I mean, crime scenes that occurred long before he was arrested, where the DNA was sent 
from the autopsy into the forensic laboratory at SAPS. You know, it's like, okay, so how do you, how are you saying that we then took that DNA from the crime scenes, took it away, destroyed it, mm. then went and took your DNA from this condom, convinced someone at forensics to <laughs> to fake his DNA, put it in there. It's just like, dude, you know, you don't under, clearly also understand how chain of custody works and, yeah. you know, DNA processing. That DNA was sitting long before we even arrested you at the, the forensic laboratory. So I'm not surprised by that. Um, but you know, it was just uh, look. It all seems pretty, um, pretty certain that this guy is going to be convicted. The evidence against him is very strong, etc. Is there were there any aspects of the court case that were questionable in your view that could have kind of derailed things a little? You know, not that I specifically recall. To be honest with you, it you know when we prepare for a serial murder trial. You must understand if you've got people like Pete Bellafelt and and uh, you know, I gave evidence also, mm. you know that when that case goes to court, you're going to have every aspect thoroughly stitched up, ready, available. Your witnesses lined up. Um, we had uh, it was Advocate Munsami. I don't know if she was assisted by um, another advocate, but she she was phenomenal. Mm. You know, she was a brilliant prosecutor. Really understood serials, what we're trying to achieve, where my evidence, the linkage linkage analysis based on similar fact evidence was going to fit in. So really had just a great team. And that's typically, we, we typically would prepare these things 100% fantastically ready for court that we almost never have, we, or we've never lost a serial trial, let me put it that way. You might have here and there a account or a charge that falls away, that's very common, yeah. but uh, we've never lost, we never had a serial murderer walk away from a trial and uh, not guilty verdict. So, and that's because of the level of preparation that's put into these. You know, we, we had a phenomenal judge, uh, Judge Cormor was just, uh, just a, just phenomenal yeah. uh, and you can see from his judgment that he really understood what this case is about he understood you know the similar fact evidence and it was just a pleasure to be working with the judge or well, working but i mean be, being before a judge who was competent on sharp on board his you can read from his as i said his the 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 sent the the the, the, the judgment um, typed judgment and sentence that he he just he knew what kind of person we yeah. were dealing with um from judgments, do you get a sense of whether a judge is kind of enthusiastic about a case or not? You know, in some cases, the judgment will be a little bit more vague because maybe it's yeah. not like ticking all the judges' boxes as far as kind of interest and curiosity is concerned. But here you've got um, quite a compelling case. and that. Uh... Yeah, um, you know, the judgment in the, during a trial, a judge or magistrate has to be very reserved, even, you know, the impartiality, appearance of impartiality, and even if he's thinking this guy is so by far, by now he's you know 100% guilty, no doubt based on the evidence in front of me, they still have to you know at least show that they are considering both sides and being fair in the courtroom and how they deal with the both both parties, which can be difficult if you have a case where you you know you have a suspect who's clearly a bastard, uh, who's behaving inappropriately in court, and you know maybe you have an incompetent lawyer who's trying all these tricks. It's, I think it's a challenge for them to, to remain very neutral in appearance. Mm. I mean, here I just want to say he was defended by a very competent uh, legal aid counsel, uh, Advocate Madondo. Um, but the, 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 it, when it comes to judgment and sentencing, they can let rip and say what they think of a suspect. Okay. And that's exactly what this particular um, judge actually did. Wait, let me read a bit here. When he, 
Labas Gachni testified. No, that's, that's about me. <laughs> what he says about the judge, what he says about the suspect. I know, I wanted to read the bit about you. You can read that bit. I'm not going to read on, that. Because I see you put it in your presentation here, so you obviously like this bit. Yeah, so, so wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so in terms of him sort of unpacking how he felt about the suspect, yes. coming back to your question, yes. and I'm going to quote here from the actual judgment. The judge said, it is also clear that human life is of no value to people like the accused. And he then goes on to quote Wind in the Willows. I mean, I've never heard Wind in the Willows quoted in a court case. He says, and this is the quote, He is a terror, a terrible terror, lord of the lonely spots and bushes who goes around in search of women to rape and murder, for whom all women must give way or be smitten to nothing, nothingness and everlasting night. If I am to borrow from the allegory of the book, The Wind in the Willows. I mean, sure, I mean, this judge. And he goes on. I agree with the argument and submissions of counsel for the state that the accused should be removed permanently from society. He does not deserve to be with ordinary and normal law-abiding citizens. Him and his ilk belong in jail, where they may be gainfully utilized or employed to manufacture or produce equipment and products as payment for their upkeep and for their sins. The accused, it is accused, it is the considered opinion of this court that you are an evil and perverted serial murderer and rapist who poses an extreme danger to society in general and to women in particular. It is my duty to ensure that you are permanently removed from society. And he quotes now from um, Jack Mohali's warning statement when he was arrested, where he said to uh, Brigadier Bellefeld, Director, I want you to help me because I, uh, when I'm with a woman, I lose control and I don't know what I'm doing. I kill all of them if they don't give me what I want, closed quote. And the judge then goes on to say, I am happy, sir, to grant you your wish. You cannot live with women in peace and in loving atmosphere. Whenever you see them, you kill them if you do not get what you want from them or they don't want to accede to your demand or request. There is no way you can be outside prison and not um, come into contact with women. So to protect you from yourself and the woman folk from you, I am removing you for good from being in and at the same space with them. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, it is. It's, it's quite, like, it's as we said, this Judge, Judge Cuomo, you're like you're my hero in this case. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's the, where he gets that opportunity to say what he thinks. I mean, he's obviously said credibility-wise, you know, he had no credibility. Um, he says... The accused was a woeful witness in the witness stand. He contradicted what was put to state witnesses on his behalf and even came up with new versions that were at odds with his entire testimony. He did not hesitate to deny what he testified to a few moments earlier. I distinctly formed an impression that the accused was not telling the truth to the court. He heard what his fiancée, I won't mention her name, said about him and what happened during the arrest, but did not contradict her under cross-examination. Nevertheless, when he testified in his defense, he went ahead and negated all of which she told the court, even venturing to state, uh, in fact, it was her who was a traditional healer who wore these beads that were found in his home. He had clearly forgotten that during cross-examination, he denied ever seeing beads in his house. He professed to be a non-drinking, non-smoking ZCC, ZCC member, but in his evidence, he openly told the court that he smoked cigarettes, um, etc. So, I mean, he just goes on lambasting him about his contradictions and ultimately with the point, legal point of saying he's an unreliable, untruthful, untrustworthy witness that cannot be relied upon. His, you know, his events are so impossible, cannot represent the truth. Um, you know, that's, so that's important for him to say, but he, that's an opportunity for him to say, this is what I think of you. When all of his tricks and his stories and his manipulations that have proved so successful for him in freedom come up against the competent part of the legal system, mm -hmm. then all of that bravado and all of that arrogance is just so exposed, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Of course, continuing with the judge's extremely lucid and and eloquent um, uh, judgment is the section where he comments, when he, Labaskachni, testified in this case, he was awesome indeed. He was a particularly impressive expert witness who presented his, his evidence in a lucid, professional, and objective manner. His evidence has been of immense help to this court. I'm not gonna high, lie. I'm not high gonna praise lie. indeed. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. That's that's very cool. Judges, you know, judges often don't really comment on the, the job of the police, or you know, they don't get too excited about a witness's evidence very often. So it's really, I mean, for me, I must say, me personally, it was fantastic to have a judge say that. It's great if you testify again. Like, this is a great judgment for linkage analysis because he went into quite a lot of depth about that evidence I gave and similar fact evidence and very praiseworthy of it. So, of course, now, next time I'm testifying in court, we just give this judgment, we give the quarry judgment. Judges reading, hey, not only did the previous courts accept this evidence, they really liked this witness and they mm -hmm. felt him to be expert in their field, really helpful, etc. So that helps the next time. So it's about building that case record of of really quality evidence with that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting in the trial, you know, the judge sort of broke up what evidence, the types of evidence we had in different cases. We had cases where there was direct evidence, you know, DNA or whatever other direct evidence. Then cases where there was circumstantial evidence and cases where there was circumstantial and similar fact, which is my evidence, and cases where there were only similar fact. And he broke up the cases into saying they all fitted into one of these four, each case fit into one of these four. So my, as I said, my evidence was the linkage analysis, which was not taking forensic evidence into account, but taking into the behavior of the suspect, the victimology, the geographical location, how the crime was committed. I, in my report, don't comment on any of the forensic evidence present. Um, and essentially, you know, um, essentially, I just want to jump to it here. Um, you know, I looked at the method, the tools used, which would have been the ligatures, what kind of violence, the sexual behavior, the signature, the time of day, the geographical patterns, victimology. So, you know, we had 16 out of 16 were black females. We had the grouping of the bodies around West End clay bricks, Fentus Porcelanasia, and the West End clay bricks and Alasia themselves were very close to each other. We had a ligature, 11 of the 16 cases was clothing that was used, the victim's clothing. A sexual theme guaranteed in 14 of the 16. Strangulation, 13 of the 16. You know, and that the bodies were all found out in the open felt, 15 of the 16, except the one lady also was wrapped up in a blanket. Um, and then in my opinion, 11 of the cases were undoubtedly linked to one offender. Now, I don't say it's Jack Mohali, because how, you know, I don't have the evidence to say yes. that. But I say it's undoubtedly 11 of these were the work of one offender. And 15 were more like, were very possibly linked to that same offender. So I gave a very clear certainty with 11, a, le a lesser degree of certainty for the other five, but I still believe that they were very likely to be linked. Um, and that was in a nutshell. I mean, obviously my report was, you know, um, 15, 20 pages long to get to, to elucidate that more clearly. Then to the sentencing. 16 murders, 16 life sentences, 15 rapes, 20 years for each, that's 300 years. Yeah. Four rapes, that's four life sentences for that. One robbery with aggravating, 15 years. Nine kidnapping, five years for each, that's 45 years. Two thefts, that's three years for each, that's six years. One assault, GBH, two years. One fraud, three years. One attempted murder, five years. One sexual assault, three years. One escape from custody, three years. And the judge and Judge Cormus said um, 
um, in his as part of his judgment in the very unlikely situation where the correctional services department may contemplate releasing the accused on parole in the future it is the recommendation of this court because of the complete absence of any remorse or recognition of wrongdoing and in my opinion there is little prospect of rehabilitation or reformation that the accused should remain in custody for the remainder of his natural life and should never be released from prison which is a lovely statement to hear from the judge but can you just comment on how that fits into the reality yeah. of what will happen so all these him. sentences i think he did say some kind of overlap with each other but essentially once you've been given a life sentence even one that starts from today the day that the judge gives you that life sentence um, and it goes on until you die and the only difference is at some point you might get parole and that's usually the first opportunity that that could happen would be at 25 years down the line or if you hit the age of 65. Um, it doesn't guarantee that you would be given parole. It's just that you'll start to have parole hearings. And you have to show, obviously, the parole board that you're rehabilitated, you've done various courses, you've been well-behaved in prison, you show remorse. That's why it's very important that this type of judgment, which probably didn't, should go to correctional services because they need to know at the bottom when the judge says these things that hopefully, ideally, if things work properly, which they don't, would have sway at the parole board to say this guy showed no remorse, this was his behavior, I believe he would do it again, and they should take that into account when they do look at consideration for parole. Like I said, sadly, most of this information is not going to be transported to correctional services. It, it just doesn't work like that. It's not like copies of the case files go there. This judgment would have been the ideal thing to sit on his file at correctional services, that when they read this, they know exactly what he did. Otherwise, all they've got is, is Mokhala's version of what happened, um, which we know he's a liar, and he's not going to give them the full version. He's going to give them the watered-down version at the best. Yeah. So it really is important that you know a judgment like this does go through it, and that the parole boards hear this. And I mean, I'd like to think this guy wouldn't ever get parole, but I wouldn't put it beyond correctional services. I think that's where we had to kind of conclude this discussion: is that that harsh reality that we come up against again that we've discussed. And on numerous occasions in this podcast is the fact that at the age of 65 or 25 years he will come up for parole and it's a lottery whether he stays yeah. in prison or whether he doesn't and that is the simple reality that we face in South Africa yeah I just want to see here if we've got the date when he was convicted then we can kind of guesstimate when he would have his first oh yeah here we go date of sentence and conviction <laughs> so they convicted him on the 16th of March 2011 he was sentenced two days later <laughs> so clearly didn't waste time no. so basically a 2011 plus 25 years 2036 unless there's some constitutional court judgments that would affect that but I think it's unlikely um and, ima and imagine where the police is going to, where the, if, if things continue on the trajectory that they are on, where the police and legal system is going to be in another 14 years' time. And also, just I'm just doing some calculations. So he was, when he was convicted, he was probably then about 44. So technically, it's 25 years. Uh, he would be 69. So that would have been in 2036. Uh, take away four years, so 2032, because he's 65 at that point. Yeah. Sorry, my math is not that great. Yeah, yeah. He would potentially, um, 2032, have his parole hearings. Well, Look, if, if, we're we're still lucky, do, if we're still doing the podcast in 2032, we'll do this case again. Yeah, but, and if we're lucky, and I'm sorry to say this, this sounds very mean, hopefully because of all his raping behavior, health-wise, yes. he might not make it. 
There or someone go. in prison might decide that he shouldn't make it. I just want to comment here. I said earlier it was Advocate Moon Sammy who it was, who was the, the prosecutor, and she was assisted by Advocate Narissa Miller, both phenomenal, phenomenal prosecutors that I've worked with on quite a number of cases and really are the right kind of prosecu prosecutors for dealing with psychologically motivated crimes. Uh, to my knowledge, they're both there. I think Advocate Moon Sammy is now working in Mpumalanga, uh, I do believe Advocate Muller is still, Narissa is still um, at the DPP's office in Johannesburg, if I'm not mistaken, but phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's such a pleasure to work with prosecutors of that caliber. Um, it just kind of really lifts your spirits. And then you get a judge like this, and you kind of do, it reinstills it re your faith in the prosecution system. Uh, and Captain Mantata, who was great, phenomenal, made these linkages from speaking to a colleague and arrested the guy. That really lifts your spirits. Sadly, we'd like to see a lot more of that kind of those kind of people with that kind of motivation around. Um, yeah, there is some hope for us, folks. There is some hope for us. Okay, please subscribe to our page on YouTube. Um, simply search Profiler Africa, and uh, do get your friends to uh, subscribe as well. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. Simply search Profiler. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa, and do join our Facebook group, Gerard. Yeah, so one last thing. Um, as I said, we often speak about Nicole Engelbrecht, who we interviewed, I think, on our last episode. Yes. She's a good friend of our podcast. Um, she is doing another book signing um, on the 19th of November at Exclusive Books in Brooklyn, Pretoria. A nice little exclusive books uh, store there. And I have the pleasure of being the person who gets to interview her. So you'll get to meet me and Nicole, who will be launching her book, um, or signing her book, um, 19 November, Exclusive Books, 4 o'clock at Brooklyn in Pretoria. So hope, hopefully we'll see some of you there. All right, so get along, please, and do uh, get a copy of Nicole's book. Get a copy of uh, Gerard's books. Go along and meet the two of them. They are lovely. They're as lovely in person as they sound on when they're... When they're when they're invading your Thanks, brain man. on the podcast. They really are. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jared. If you hadn't heard of the Western Area uh, Strangler, you have now. Um, certainly a prolific serial killer and, an, and another example of quite, quite your typical standard kind of uh, profile of a serial killer that we see in South Africa. Um, I guess the place to end the discussion today, Jared, is with the fact that despite all of those charges and all of those years that he is uh, sentenced to sit in jail, uh, at some point in the maybe not too distant future, this is a guy that could very possibly be back out on our streets again. And that's just how the system works, unfortunately. And time flies. You know, we have a lot of people that when I started in the police my early years who got convicted and got heavy sentences like life sentences are actually coming up for parole now. Yeah. So, you know, it goes faster than you think. Lock your doors, Jared. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week. Uh, thank you very much, and good night. <laughs>